Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. And uh, Josh, um, we focus a lot on the science of oncology and we only briefly scratch the surface of the human aspect of it um, for obvious reasons. But when a person is diagnosed with advanced life-limiting cancer, it's, it's obvious that they can react in an endless number of ways. Many retreat into themselves, some very understandably are overcome by denial, and it can take a long time to comprehend the enormity of the diagnosis. Many will grab the metaphorical bull by the horns and really be up for anything that you offer them if it gives them a chance to improve their quality or quantity of life, which is one of the most rewarding aspects of our profession. Others will chase the bucket list and complete whatever fanciful dreams that reality had pushed onto the back burner. But very few respond by putting their heads down and continuing to train and eventually complete a triathlon. This is exactly what happened to Leslie Medley Russell, a patient of the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas, who was diagnosed with ovarian cancer midway through preparations for a triathlon in her home state. Despite going through initial chemotherapy, she still continued with her training and still completed the Ironman event, which is exactly one Ironman more than I could ever dream of finishing as a relatively healthy person. We'll leave a link to an article that Miss Medley Russell penned for MD Anderson in the episode description, but suffice to say, truly an incredible testament to human fortitude and an unusually expiring introduction to our topic of the week, which is metastatic ovarian cancer. Really, truly inspiring. And it's really, it's so nice to hear these stories because you think you don't win a lot in this job. And I was thinking back to what Belinda said, that what we do every day, it is a little bit weird. You know, we go in a lot of our cancers we can't cure and we're kind of battling this inevitable outcome. And hearing someone like this individual achieve a dream, do it under such odds is is the reason you and I got into this job to start off with. Absolutely. It's ex- exactly the sort of thing that keeps us going and um, certainly is something that we love to hear about. So our topic, as we've said, is metastatic ovarian cancer, advanced ovarian cancer, and it's a, it's a little bit different in that advanced is still treated with curative intent. But Josh, I think I, without pulling the curtain too far back, I think we should uh, give our listeners a little bit of a background on ovarian cancer because it is, I think, one of the more notorious cancers in the general um, public imagining. It's 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 the one where everybody knows that it's caught late. Everybody knows that it's very difficult to diagnose. Um, but not a lot of people, obviously know the ins and outs of symptoms and presentation and obviously treatment. Ovarian cancer is one of those cancers that for me, I, I have treated it in certain centers, but there are a lot of cancer centers that if you don't have a gynecological oncology service, you just won't see it because you need surgeons, you need an MDT because the primary treatment is really still surgery. Sometimes there's some neoadjuvant and I'll talk about that a little bit. This is going to be an overview because ovarian cancer is complex like most cancers. And if you get into the nitty gritty, you're going to get lost down that rabbit hole like Alice. And let's try not to do that. Uh, Ovarian cancer is the second most common gynecological cancer 
behind uterine cancer. And depending where you look, some say it's the third. All we need to know is very common. And it is the most common cause of gynecological death in the United States and other resource-abundant countries. That was an interesting little phrase. So resource-abundant mean high SES, socioeconomic status, more money, I assume. Worldwide, nearly 314,000 women were diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2020, and 207,000 of them died from the disease. To put that into context, that's approximately 1.3% of American women will be diagnosed with this cancer at some point during their lifetime. That's over 1 in 100. That's a lot. It's higher in the Caucasian population than Hispanic, Asian, or Islander populations. There are lots of risk factors. Some are confirmed, some are unconfirmed. But known risk factors including older age, with over 50% of these cancers diagnosed over the age of 55. In, and in those that are under 20, generally it's a germ cell tumor predominant. And 50, you know, over 50, it's the epithelial ovarian cancer predominant. So there's other subtypes, which I will list briefly in a little bit. Other significant risk factors include early menarche, so early um, early start to your periods, BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations, Lynch syndrome. Um, Lynch is very much associated with uh, colorectal cancer, but it's also got a host of other particular cancers that you can get, including ovarian. Uh, those are nulliparous, meaning they have not had any children. Those are the history of endometriosis. Those are the asbestos exposure Less common now, I suspect, with all the new regulations, but still there, especially in the over 55s, and history of pelvic irradiation. There are also some protective factors, which I didn't know this, but, well, I didn't know all of them, but I definitely know some of them, and now I know lots more of them. So protective All right, all right, calm down. (laughs) Hey, Mikey, what are some of the protective... Thank you, I actually wanted you to bite, so thank you. What are some of the protective factors... (laughs) Protective factors of ovarian cancer? Well, I know that um, the... As you mentioned, the the duration and the number of periods you have increases your risk. And so people who have had some sort of uh, contraception for period control have a decreased risk? Correct. Um, women who are the opposite of nulliparous, <laughs> women who have, who have had children. It's called parity. You can see neither of us are We're, on, neither on, on of us, obstetricians. Uh, neither of us are obstetricians, no. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, so increased parity. Yep. Um, please enlighten me as to the rest of them. Those are the two that I got. So they're good, and they're the main ones. The other ones are a little bit silly, but still important. So removal of ovaries, tubal ligation, hysterectomy, and breastfeeding. Oh, yeah. I, I guess the the history of oophorectomy is something that can be applied to pretty much every cancer. You can't have uh, breast cancer, or you'd find it difficult to have primary breast cancer if you had a mastectomy. You couldn't have... Uh, bowel cancer if you've had a total colectomy and you couldn't get melanoma if you had no skin yeah that i guess that's very that's very true (laughs) technically it's true (laughs) technically good job okay presentations vary and these can either be acute subacute or incidentally found in imaging and mikey's right like many of the harder to treat cancers they're definitely harder to diagnose because things you know vague symptoms like bloating maybe some nausea maybe some urinary frequency are common symptoms 
if you've got urinary frequency, the first thing you're, you're not going to think of is, oh, I must have ovarian cancer. That's, that's my known diagnosis. Other symptoms, difficulty eating, anorexia, so poor appetite, postmenopausal bleeding, that's always an area of concern. Um, and other, I guess, bigger symptoms that you would be worried to significant bloating, like ascites, so fluid in the abdominal cavity, uh, is something that can happen. Pleural effusion, bowel obstructions, clots, uh, the deep vein thrombosis, uh, or abdominal distension. The later ones that I've mentioned, as you might, your listeners might know, but they might not know, these are definitely going to be an advanced ovarian. So if you get significant ascites, it's one of those really difficult to treat side effects of the gynecological malignancies and really debilitating for the patient. So if you can control the cancer, you can control the fluid buildup. But a lot of people need to get acidic drains, even permanent kind of taps. We call them rocket drains in Australia. I don't know, Mikey, do you have a different name where you work? No, rocket drains is what I call them too. Okay, great. I'm getting that right. And, you know, that that can provide a lot of relief, but things like bowel obstructions are really difficult to manage in the advanced ovarian cancer. People recur as in they have recurrent bowel obstructions, they have to come in and potentially have surgery. And even if they don't have surgery and they go with the conservative management, it can take days, if not weeks. Ovarian cancer is really one of those cancers, at least in my experience, where the mortality may not be as high as your pancreatic cancers, your lung cancers and what have you, but the morbidity is so, so high. Um, for a lot of the reasons you described, Josh, that the rate of refractory ascites needing rocket drains, or if you don't have access to rocket drains, like an, an, a therapeutic acidic tap every... I've, I've seen people need multiple taps a week just to keep on top of the ascites. Um, pain from peritone- peritoneal seeding, bowel obstructions you mentioned. Um, it all really does contribute to significant suffering even as the patient is, you know, un- undergoing treatment, and and it it is really one of those cancers that makes that makes it really hard on the patient, and not always quick. That's it, not always quick. A rise in serum cancer antigen CA one two five is predominant in eighty percent of patients with epithelial carcinoma, so that's a subvariant in the ovarian sphere. And post-treatment is very useful in looking at the response to treatment and recurrence. Of course, like most of our tumour markers, it's not 100% specific or sensitive, meaning you can't use that alone to diagnose. Otherwise, it would be a lot easier to pick these things up quickly. Talking about the histological subtypes, epithelial carcinomas are the most common subtype of the ovaries, fallopian tubes, and the peritoneum. They're 90% of all these cancers followed by clear cell, which is 10%, endometroid, which is also 10%, mucinous carcinoma, which is about 3%, and low-grade serous carcinoma, which is about 5%. Despite the best efforts of our treatment, 70% of women diagnosed with ovarian cancer will have a recurrence, and this will depend on stage. So stage 1, 10% will recur. Stage 2, 30% will recur. Stage 3, 70 to 90% will recur, and stage 4 is 90 or above. Despite treatment with chemotherapy, as I mentioned, 70% of the epithelial variant will recur. 
the GCIG, which is the Gynecological Cancer Intergroup, recommended recategorization platinum sensitivity based on platinum-free intervals. We will talk more about the treatment, but with our treatment, it's going to always be a platinum with usually a taxane. Well, most of the time when I treated it, and I don't treat it at this hospital, it's carboplatin and paclitaxel. Would you agree, Michael? Carbotaxel. It's always the way with ovarian cancer. Always the way. And what you see is the categories will depend on are they refractory, are they resistant, are they partially sensitive, or are they sensitive? And generally, I think if you're refractory, you'll recur in less than a month. If it's if it's uh, resistant, it's one to six months. If it's partially sensitive, it's six to 12 months. And if it's fully sensitive, it's greater than 12 months. And this will dictate your next line of treatment. So it's important to know that. Treatment, which I've already highlighted, the chemotherapy option, but generally surgery where you kind of remove as much of the cancer as you can followed by giving them chemotherapy. There are always times where you will give neoadjuvant treatment um, and this includes stage 4 disease, extensive extraperitoneal metastases, poor performance status, meaning you know these guys are frail, and biopsy-proven malaria malignancies. One of the highlights, Mikey, and I know a lot of this is the adjuvant or early stage that I've really talked about rather than the metastatic, is that 80% of patients with early stage disease are occurrence-free at five years. So it is nice. If you catch this early, you will be able to cure it most of the time. However, the majority of patients with advanced stage ovarian cancer will relapse, which I'm just highlighting the significant challenges of this cancer cohort. And it is, a, as you mentioned, a cancer that is so hard to catch early. That's exactly it. And I think that's really summarizing where we're at with ovarian cancer and I know it's a 15 minute talk but the summary like many of our cancers if you catch it early it's very curable if you catch it late or it's hard to diagnose like ovarian cancer it is very difficult to manage and I think somewhat different to let's say lung and pancreatic which Michael very eloquently highlighted thank you for that is that the morbidity associated with this cancer is difficult to manage really difficult so we have a lot to get there a lot more research that needs to be done and especially a lot more management of the toxicities in what can be quite a young patient cohort females in their generally 50s to 60s mikey do you want to introduce your article for the day absolutely can do and thank you for that whirlwind tour through ovarian cancer josh so as josh you mentioned um the backbone of treatment of uh, ovarian cancer. And I guess we are talking, for Paola 1, we've, we've talked a lot about metastatic ovarian cancer. Um, with a lot of these things, it is important to, I guess, draw a bit of a line between advanced and metastatic. Um, metastatic, obviously, being uh, distant metastases in in other organs uh, and frequently extra abdominal organs as well whereas with advanced cancer which is how i would say a significant proportion of patients with ovarian cancer present if it's contained within the abdomen 
then there is still the chance of, as as Josh mentioned, significant cytoreductive surgery or even complete surgery. And the way that's defined is whether it's an R0 or an R1 resection, uh, which describes the degree of residual disease after an operation. And some of these operations are incredibly hard on the patient. There's a lot of morbidity associated with them, but they do have a survival benefit. So I guess just to clarify that when we're, when we're talking about advanced uh, metastatic disease in this particular setting, in, in, in the study I'm about to talk about, we are talking about advanced but still operable, which is one of the things that makes ovarian cancer, I guess, unique in the cancer space in that even that even when it's advanced there's still a rationale for surgery uh, for surgery and for our gynecological oncology surgeon surgeons to become involved so the usual treatment as josh mentioned is carboplatin and paclitaxel and uh, not too long ago there was also the in- introduction of bevacizumab with uh, evidence of benefit uh, of bevacizumab maintenance therapy following uh, chemotherapy. The wrinkle, and one thing, Josh, that you didn't mention was that there is a significant proportion of patients with homologous uh, recombination deficiencies. The most common of these is BRCA, and it's certainly the most well-known. So in terms of what um, HRDs actually are, basically um, they are... Uh, enzymes and intracellular mechanisms that work to repair uh, breaks in DNA strands. So if there is a mutation or or, um, particularly damage uh, to the DNA strands, then these um, homologous repair um, proteins will work to uh, repair that so that the cell can keep going. If you have an HRD, a deficiency of these homologous repair proteins, then if you have a break in a single strand, then the uh, DNA is at a much higher risk of breaking completely, what we call it obviously a double strand break, which means that the cell can neither produce the proteins it needs to continue to function, and it also can't replicate. So if you have a homologous repair deficiency, then this opens a door for PARP inhibitors. And PARP inhibitors trap PARP Um, on DNA at the sites of the single-strand breaks and prevents DNA repair and generates double-stranded breaks again, which uh, which eventually will lead to cellular apoptosis. And this has been a a major area of research, not just in the ovarian cancer space, but in breast cancer, prostate cancer, and even pancreatic cancer, all cancers where there is a uh, at times small but significant uh, incidence of homologous repair deficiencies such as BRCA. That's interesting. So as a summary for someone who loves the molecular side, single breaks are bad. If you make it a double break, the body will then get rid of the cell, and that's what PARP inhibitors aim to do. Absolutely. And because cancer cells sort of live in their own little world and on their own little circuit, if you make a double-stranded DNA break, then not only does the cell itself um, implode, but it makes it more amenable for uh, immune system removal and destruction in that direction as well. Okay, so the immune system goes pew-pew and they disappear. Amazing. Yes, yes. Truly, Josh, you should be a university lecturer with uh, 
condensing condensing information like that. Only if I've got the elbow patches, then I'm definitely in. You you would look good in tweed. Anyway, <laughs> um, so there are a number of studies that have looked at uh, PARP inhibitors in uh, the ovarian cancer space. The original one was the SOLO1 trial, which was a study of the PARP inhibitor Alaparib, probably the most well-known PARP inhibitor, which demonstrated um, PFS benefit as maintenance monotherapy in patients who had either a complete or partial response after chemo. So that's patients having surgery, and there may have been a little bit left, then having either a complete or partial response after adjuvant chemotherapy. SOLO1 did not include patients without uh, BRCA mutation, and it also didn't include patients who had a a homologous repair deficiency that was a non-BRCA HRD, which, as we'll see, is a small uh, is a significant proportion of the total HRD population. It also didn't include bevacizumab. So, uh, the study that I'm going to talk about, in my very meandering way, uh, the Paola one study attempted to address both of these issues. It included. It enrolled patients regardless of their HRD or BRCA status and also included bevacizumab as a standard treatment. So the Paola 1 study enrolled 806 patients uh, who had either stage 3 or stage 4 high-grade serous or endometrioid ovarian cancer, primary peritoneal cancer, or fallopian tube cancer. And I know that seems like a very broad range when we've been talking exclusively about ovarian cancer, but uh, at the end of the day, and I guess when you really narrow down on a on a cellular level, all of these cancers share uh, cellular and uh, pathological uh, characteristics. So they were sort of bundled together in this trial. It's a bit like the origin story, right? All of these cancers are from the same origin, from the same cell types, and you know, the, it's it's not unexpected that the management would be quite similar despite where the cancer develops. So if the cancer is in the peritoneum, even if that's the case, it's not going to be, it's unlikely to be a colorectal management because the actual cell isn't from that region. Yeah, it's a very similar, a very similar um, cellular phenotype, although we will stop short of calling them the Justice League. So patients were enrolled after, as I said, the standard of care, which was surgery or uh, surgery and chemotherapy with a platinum and paclitaxel. They were eligible irrespective of previous surgical outcomes, so patients could have either an R1 or an R0 resection. Uh, they were randomised three to nine weeks after the completion of their um, chemotherapy uh, to receive either a laparib or matching placebo. And they were randomized in a two-to-one ratio. Again, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but it is much easier to recruit patients to your study if you're saying they're twice as likely to get the experimental drug as opposed to the placebo. Patients did have to have either no residual disease or a partial or complete response in the known re- known residual disease after their chemotherapy. So you couldn't have a patient with a very, very nasty cancer that progressed on their adjuvant chemotherapy. So a slight selecting of good players there, but I guess if someone does progress, then as Josh said, they're platinum refractory, and obviously that changes things. It does things. not bode well Absolutely not. Um, so treatment continued with the Olaparib, um or placebo for up to two years. And it was combined with bevacizumab in both arms, uh, which was commenced 
during chemotherapy and was extended to at least a total of 15 months. Uh, most pa- patients had to be ECOG 0 to 1. A BRCA and HRD testing was done on all patients. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, with the secondary endpoints being PFS2, the second, uh, the time to second progression, overall survival, safety and quality of life data via the QLQC30 quality of life uh, questionnaire. In terms of the demographics, uh, the vast majority of patients were ECOG 0, 85% had primary ovarian cancer, 97% had a serious histological type, which sort of reflects the standard population. 54% had no evidence of disease after chemotherapy, and a further 20% had a complete pathological response of their residual disease after chemotherapy. So you're looking at near as makes no difference, three quarters of patients who go into receiving a laparib with no evidence of disease. Uh, 86% had a normal CA125, which is good, but as Josh said, isn't the be all and end all. And in terms of the actual mutation status, 47% of patients were um, HRD positive. And HRD, it's uh, positivity, it's worth mentioning, is an umbrella term because uh, 30% of patients were BRCA positive. So about 60% of patients with HRD positivity had BRCA, but there's still uh, 40% of patients roughly that had a non-BRCA homologous repair deficiency. Do you think with that, so that's something I was wondering with the BRCA and the HRD association, do you think we're just not picking up the other mutations that lead to the HRD or homologous recombination deficiency? And, you know, we do these panels, but the panelists don't include those tests. Absolutely. And I think this is something where where you are in the world really does impact your ability to access uh, a LAPRA because access to the HRD assay and the assay that they used in this was the my choice hrd plus assay and basically what it spits out it doesn't it's not like a genetic panel where it gives you it looks at specific genes and says whether they're mutated or wild type it actually just gives you a score of um your degree of homologous repair deficiency i guess and the cutoff that they use was 42 now i don't know what 42 means i don't know why they chose 42 but basically, if you had a, a score on this panel of 42 or more, you were deemed to be um, HRD positive, which of course means if you have an HRD score of 41, you're deemed to be negative. So I think uh, more information needs to be uh, needs to be gathered about how we define HRD positivity. Um, and obviously, these sorts of tests, they all need to be validated. Um, and I'm not sure if this one is, I I haven't looked that up, but, um, it does mean that potentially, even though we're picking up more patients with actionable mutations, um, in this space, there still may be a little bit of subtlety that we're not aware of. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. The whole cutoff, isn't it? Because like PDL one status, pembrolizumab works in patients with low PDL one even if it's not as effective as high PDL one So having that cut off, are we missing a cohort of patients who, and we've discussed this so many times beforehand, are we missing a cohort of patients that are borderline? Because if it was me and it's like, oh, you know, you're 41 versus not 43, I'd be like, you should just try the drug. You're not going to lose anything. Bevacizumab is still going to help you in this setting. 
Absolutely. And I guess um, the other thing as well, or the, the flip side to that, uh, as we'll see in the results, is that the difference between the two groups was quite stark. Um, one last tidbit before I get to those is that patients uh, in the elaparib group, about 20% of patients in the elaparib group, uh, after progression had subsequent PARP inhibitor therapy compared to 45% of patients in the placebo group. So even though crossover is not allowed, there is still potentially a a minimizing, you could almost say, of the potential benefit because some patients uh, in the control group are still getting PARP inhibited down the road. And as we will see, if you have a homologous repair deficiency, the addition of a PARP inhibitor is very effective. So in the... investigator-assessed PFS region of the study, there was a significant benefit with the addition of elaparib, and this was in the intention-to-treat trial, intention-to-treat population. The difference was 22.1 versus 16.6 months of progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.59, and that reached statistical significance. But the difference, gets, as I mentioned, gets very, very stark when you start to break it down. So in patients who are HRD-positive, and this is the the umbrella term, remember, the median progression-free survival was 37.2 months against 17 months with a hazard ratio of 0.33. In patients who are BRCA positive, the the hazard ratio was 0.31 with 37.2 months against 21.7 months. So we're seeing that if you have an HRD or a BRCA mutation, the addition of elaparib is definitely effective. Interestingly, if you're HRD positive but BRCA negative, so you're in one of these non-BRCA homologous repair deficiency groups, you still get a benefit of 28.1 months versus 16.6 months. So that's the good. The bad is that if you are BRCA negative, you have a benefit of a little under three months, 18.9 versus 16 months of progression-free survival. And if you're HRD negative, which means you have absolutely no homologous repair deficiencies, your uh, your cancer's single strand breaks are being repaired like nobody's business, the hazard ratio is one, which means that elaparib or placebo, the outcomes, at least in progression-free survival, are exactly the same. That, that's a rough one, isn't it? Yeah. So, so, and, and so if you are in that 50% of patients or roughly 50% of patients who has no HRDs, then... As the oncologist, you really need to consider whether doing a lap or adding a PARP inhibitor is worth it. Was there a discussion point of why the BRCA mutation plus the homologous or combination deficiency in combination was more effective than the HRD by itself with BRCA negative? Is that to do with the mutations and the repair and the BRCA? Influence. Well, I think I think it's the last one. It's the BRCA influence because if you look at patients who are BRCA positive, but um, uh, and you can't be BRCA positive without being HRD um, positive, I guess. But the BRCA positivity really is driving the benefit, and you can see this because the HRD positivity, the outcomes in the HRD positive and the BRCA positive ones are exactly the same. So you can tell that patients who are BRCA positive are the ones that are getting the greatest benefit from elaparib. The benefit if you're non-BRCA positive but still have an HRD is there, it's just not as significant. So 
if I was spitballing or hypothesizing here, I would say that BRCA is just the most uh, active uh, homologous repair deficiency. And if you have that and you block that, you're going to have a greater effect. Yeah, that's what I suspected. I thought maybe you had some amazing insight into the molecular influence of... Yeah. I always have amazing insights. They're just very rarely into the molecular influence. Um, In terms of PFS2, this is where things get a little bit uh, less inspiring, I guess. Um, But again, it follows the same pattern where the intention to treat population, there is a benefit. But this is where... This is an example of a study where subgroup analysis and actually looking at the numbers and not just looking at the, not just applying a conclusion to the whole population is very, very important because the hazard ratio of PFS2 in the intention to treat population is 0.78, which pretty much is just an average of patients who are HRD positive and HRD negative because the HRD positive PFS2 hazard ratio was 0.56 and the HRD negative PFS2 is 0.98. So even though you might point to the intention to treat um, benefit and say, hey, there's a benefit there, it the difference is really, really stark. And it's very, very clear that patients who don't have a homologous repair deficiency really don't benefit. Um, and coming to the overall survival, the data of which was only published about uh, a month ago, I think it um, came out, Uh, at or right before ESMO uh, this year um, showed more of the same really the intention to treat population really had very little benefit so the hazard ratio was 0.92 the median overall survival in the elaparib arm was 56.5 months versus 51.6 months in the control arm which is not nothing but again the HRD positive population is driving that number. So the hazard ratio in the HRD positive population was 0.62 compared to 1.19 in the HRD negative population. So I think more than probably any study that I've looked at, the difference is very, very clear cut. Yeah, it's 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 day and night here. Very I don't think there can be an argument to be made for giving PARP inhibitors to patients who don't have a uh, um, a uh, HRD. I think it'd be analogous to giving someone osimertinib or an EGFR inhibitor when they don't have an EGFR mutation. There's there's just nothing to nothing for the drug to actually target. As you said so eloquently, it's literally the same as a placebo. So if you're going to get toxicities, don't give the drug, it's expensive, it's not going to benefit them. And if you look at the forest plot analysis, which I assume you were somewhat riffing off a little bit, it's it's very, very clear-cut, and I like it because it is clear-cut, but it also shows that our treatments are so limited that you get a hazard ratio of 0.33 in, you know, the, I guess, the optimal cohort of patients. So incredible, but also... Yeah, just very, very subset. It's definitely not for everyone, which of course makes, uh, at a human level, makes the consultation difficult when you have to tell a patient that this drug that they've probably heard of, probably have done their research on, is not going to work for them. 
and it's even more difficult in the resource poor nations where you might not have access to BRCA mutation testing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Australia, I don't think that we have easy access to the HRD panel that they used in this study. Um, but uh, much less, you know, BRCA mutation testing or even Olaparib itself. Well, yeah, any, any of those things. Mm. Just a constellation of challenges that... I think, um, I, I know I'm segueing a little bit, Mikey, and I'm stealing your show, but I went to a rare cancer ball last night. A rare cancer so, ball? Yeah, there's um, there's a group, and there's actually a lot of these grassroots movements um, across across the globe looking at patients with rare cancers. And look, ovarian cancer in itself isn't a rare cancer, but at the same time, you have to understand that these particular treatments and these testings and all these things that can improve people's lives, it all falls under the equitable access to potential treatments. And hopefully, like a lot of the other testing we can do, the price falls and becomes much more readily accessible because a lapper is a tablet, right? It's a tablet that is pretty much very well tolerated minimal well, you will get into the toxicities and maybe um you really are mind. stealing my thunder aren't you? i'm You're sorry intent just, on stealing my thunder it's a it's an emotion it is it, it's an emotional cancer ovarian cancer because people are so symptomatic and it's really hard watching them when they're struggling yeah absolutely anyway mikey keep going with the uh, side effect profile <laughs> yeah so i mean the side effect profile is yet another facet to this argument of when do we give elaparib because the toxicity was similar across the two groups. Now, as expected, if you're adding elaparib, you're comparing it to, remember, bevacizumab plus placebo, the greatest difference in side effects was in the area of cytopenias. So neutropenia, particularly anemia, thrombocytopenia, the rates were much higher in the elaparib group because you are comparing it to placebo. Um, in combination with a drug that does not usually cause cytopenias. Um, But the rates were fairly similar. And I guess, importantly, there was no significant difference in the quality of life scores given by the patients. So even though we're effectively adding a trial, it's not specifically impeding on a patient's quality of life. Now, Josh, Olaparib has a, a, a handful of, I guess, really notorious and at the same time, really rare side effects. Do you know what they are? I would definitely edit this if I get them wrong. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, aplastic anemia, is that one of them? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, cool. I was like, it came to my head and I was just, I just had had an inspirational moment. Um, Look, that's probably the only one that I can think of at the top of my head that's really, you know, just got to really be careful with the anemias mm. you're on the right track because it's basically hematological shenanigans um so myelodysplastic syndrome and uh, acute myeloid leukemia so i sort of group it with the anthracyclines who have that have that about one percent documented risk of uh, acute myeloid leukemia uh, laparib um and other PARP inhibitors it is something that you need to um, consent the patient for um, it's very rare in this study. The rate was about 1.6%. Interestingly, it was higher in the placebo group. Um, but it is, and, and don't ask me to explain that one. 
Uh, Can you please explain how placebo causes aplastic anemia? It doesn't. I suspect. I suspect it. Uh, if you look at the normal population rate it's of yeah. uh, MDS, AML, and uh, aplastic anemia, it's about two point two percent, which is what it was. I, I feel we're a little handicapped because lots of places when you're an oncologist, you cover both hematological and solid organ malignancies, whereas us down under, we we subspecialize to one or the other. Mm, yeah. Um, so don't ask us to manage leukemias, and there will ne- there will never be a oncology for the inquisitive mind episode on AML because we'll just be like, what is what is a leukemia? Unless we have a hematologist, then we would definitely talk about AML. Yeah, and we'll just let them do the the majority of the talking. Anyway, um, so there is so there is a documented association with PARP inhibitors, particularly laparib, and these. Um, hematological conditions, but that doesn't seem to have been borne out in this particular study. So in conclusion, because we've been rabbiting on for too long, um, there is a definite benefit in of PARP inhibitors in patients who are uh, either homologous repair deficient and or BRCA mutation positive patients. However, it is equally clear that there is no benefit for patients who do not have these deficiencies. In Australia, Olaparib is unfortunately only currently approved for patients with BRCA mutations. So that 30% of patients uh, is are the only pe- people who can access Olaparib in this case. There is a current resubmission for the regulatory committee to expand that uh, approval to include patients with uh, with HRD positivity. And I, I can't remember, I remember reading that it may have actually been approved for that. But anyway... Um, uh, but that is something that is in the works. Obviously, in other countries, if you have access to this assay um, and you get above that magical 42, which is truly the answer to the question of the life, the universe, and everything. Um, <laughs> Josh, is smiling at my, Josh is smiling at my, at my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference there. Um, it's as good a reason to pick 42, True. I guess, as any. But... Uh, Hopefully we get expanded in other countries. You can get um, uh, access to a lap rib uh, if you have this HRD positivity. The main limitation of this study is there was no single arm lap rib control arm. So there is some preclinical data that suggests a synergy between a lap rib and bevacizumab. And we don't know if uh, how much of the benefit is a lap rib and how much of it is the combination or the bevacizumab itself. That is a potential limitation of the study, but I'm sure that down the track when all of these things are off patent and we can access them for peanuts, um, someone will do a prospective or retrospective analysis of uh, a laparib plus bevacizumab. I'm looking forward to the day that it costs peanuts so we can all access it. Yeah, that's the oncologist's dream, is curing cancer with very cheap things. Yeah, peanut, one a laparib, one peanut, one a laparib. Yes, exactly. Okay, we're definitely digressing. Okay, I will talk about mine. Yes, Josh, please take it away from for your trial. Maybe I should have talked about Aurelia before you talked about yours because it's kind of the, the stock standard chemo plus bevacizumab because you, you spoke about Bev in your trial. But I will try to do it justice and summarize it so you guys can go about your day. So the trial is called Bevacizumab Combined with Chemotherapy platinum-resistant recurrent ovarian cancer, the Aurelia Open Label Randomized Phase 3 Trial. So Aurelia is A-U-R 
E L I A. It's a great name. I know, it's really, really good. I love, I love these names. Anyway, the purpose of this trial was in platinum-resistant ovarian cancers, single-agent chemotherapy is standard. Bevacizumab at this time was an unknown in the resistance setting. So this was the first randomized phase three trial to our knowledge combining bevacizumab with chemo in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. So what you're saying, Josh, is we are taking a George Lucas Star Wars approach to sequencing of treatments. So we've done the original trilogy and now we're going to the prequels after the, tri- uh, the original trilogy. And you can ask yourself, did I like the prequel better than I liked the original? You decide who you prefer, Team Mikey or Team Josh. Let's, let's not open that particular <laughs> can of worms on this episode. No, Mikey is much better at narrating the intros, I must say. Okay, um, so platinum-free interval is a strong predictor for treatment success in recurrent ovarian cancer. Patients with disease relapse within six months, as I mentioned in my intro, after that therapy are categorized as having platinum-resistant disease, and at first relapse, approximately 25% of patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer they will ultimately just develop resistance. So this is a new approach, right? Now, bevacizumab um, is a vascular endothelial growth factor A receptor, and it was known to have efficacy as a single agent. So this was already known prior to commencing this trial. So the study design, it was an open-label, randomized phase three trial designed to determine the impact of the efficacy, safety, and quality of life of combining bevacizumab with chemotherapy for platinum-resistant recurrent ovarian cancer. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoints included objective response rates, CA125 levels, overall survival, safety, tolerability, and quality of life. But in summary, you want to know, are they going to live longer? Is it going to delay the time that they relapse, and how do their tumor markers do? That's the summary. So the efficacy of this, the study did meet the primary endpoint, which was PFS, uh, with the addition of bevacizumab, with a hazard ratio, not as good as yours, Mikey, but it was 0.48, with a p-value of less than 0.01. Median PFS was 3.4 months in the um, with chemotherapy, versus 6.7 months in the bev chemotherapy arm so you doubled that time which is good the thing is with this trial it didn't it unfortunately did not meet overall survival um but again you know you have to wait years sometimes to find that out the objective response rate was 12.6 percent in the chemotherapy arm versus 30.9 percent in the bev chemotherapy arm already you've got a winner here You've tripled the amount of patients who are going to respond if you add bevacizumab, which is great. Well, they said 18.3% difference. My mathematics is definitely very bad at the moment, but I'm going to go closer to triple. Oh, yes, yes. 18.3%, also known as tripling. (laughs) Also known as tripling. The the objective response rate was 11.8% versus 27.3% in the chemotherapy versus the chemotherapy bevacizumab arm. And what you saw was, again, a response with the CA125 as well. The median duration of therapy was three cycles, ranging from 1 to 17 cycles in the chemotherapy arm, and six cycles as a, as a median duration, up to 24 cycles. So patients who 
had the intervention arm received more cycles of treatment because they responded longer and they lasted longer, which is exactly what you want. At the time of data cutoff, overall, um, final overall survival analysis, 72% or 40% of 72 patients or 40% of the chemotherapy arm had received single agent BEV after progressing on chemotherapy alone. When we talk about adverse effects, Mikey, there was a lot, far higher number of people that had hypertension. But again, in a trial, this is an early trial from years ago, we weren't great at managing BEV side effects. So we can manage hypertension. Most patients should get their blood pressure checked when they go down to have their treatment. And you will get that phone call when you're halfway in clinic. And you're like, her blood pressure is 180. What would you like us to do? And then you manage it and you look for the proteinuria and you look for those sort of side effects. So yes, there was far higher numbers of hypertension, which was greater than grade two was 36 in the intervention arm and only 12 in the chemotherapy arm. And then of course, fistula abscesses, uncommon before patients in the intervention arm greater than grade two. And then DVTs is the other one, high risk cohort, high risk kind of drug, I guess you could say. Not that high risk, but it's definitely something to think about. If they get some shortness of breath or they get swelling of their leg, please investigate. I investigate at the drop of a hat, which sounds terrible. And they're like, Josh, I have a swollen leg. I'm like, it's probably not, but I can exclude it. And then I can treat it if it comes back positive. What they found is that progression-free survival was consistent across all subgroups reported, which is great. Now, the subgroup analysis was interesting when it came to ascites, Mikey. So what they found is that patients who responded with the bevacizumab after a single cycle, their ascites stopped developing, which I thought was really cool. Um, I know this isn't going to really, but this is quality of life impact right you know if they're going to respond and they're not going to have that very debilitating side effect i'm a huge fan of that for that absolutely and i don't know if you're going to talk about it josh but i think this study was one of the things that actually led to the idea of intraperineal or um, intraperitoneal i should say not intraperineal that's awful intraperitoneal bevacizumab as a palliative treatment for um Ascites. So no, you know, not a therapeutic thing, but a, a means to reduce the rate at which people needed acidic taps and interventions. And I think it did improve things slightly. It's just difficult to routinely give. But this is probably uh, the origin of that uh, avenue of investigation, given the rates of, or the decreased rates of ascites, which is, as you say, fantastic. Yeah, it's it's sparking something that's going to improve their quality of life, even if you can't cure these patients. So the summary of the trial is, yes, there are side effects as expected. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about the neutropenia levels. They're pretty similar. You get less fatigue in the chemotherapy arm. Oh, sorry, chemotherapy plus BEV arm, interesting enough. But the, the reality is if you can manage the side effects, you, you're going to give bevacizumab in the second line based on this trial. And looking in the future, I was looking at another analysis because I don't think overall survival was met in this study. Um, but there's some questions whether or not it was actually met when you do a sub-analysis of this. So even if the overall survival might not be there, 
now, I think it's something that you should definitely consider when treating your patients, given that it could improve their quality of life exponentially. And if you can do that, and then they happen to have, as we said, a, a homologous repair deficiency, then there is a chance of a combined benefit with the addition of the laparib. So it it's, as you say, we're much better at managing the side effects. Bevacizumab, as far as treatments go, is fairly well tolerated, except, of course, when it's not. Um, <laughs> that, that's like everything, Michael. It's, it's great until you have the side effects. Tru- truly a, a, a very deep statement there. Um, and so it, it is a case, as you said, if there's not a whole heap to lose, I guess the other thing as well is it's off patent, so it's very cheap. You can that's exactly get out your bag of peanuts. The bag of peanuts, peanut, this is a map. All right, we'll have to stop with the peanut analogy, I think. Um, that's, that's the summary, really. Chemotherapy options that they gave, paclitaxel, topotecan, or pegylated liposomal doxorubicin um, were kind of the three options. Where we're most used to using paclitaxel, I think, Michael. I've used topotecan a couple of times. I think in small cell you can use it second line? Yeah, second or third line. It's quite it's quite toxic, and I'm not surprised that it hasn't caught on, um, especially given the effectiveness of um, platinum-based chemotherapy in this space. Yeah, so the summary is, for the trial, please consider it in the second line. Watch out for those yucky side effects, the hypertension, the fistulas, the DVTs, um, and the bleeds. I think that's the other one that they didn't really mention. And in Michael's study, the Polo 1 trial, you know, homologous recombination deficiency and BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations definitely add another avenue of potential longer-term treatment for your patient with minimal downsides and potentially a great quality of life. And I guess the the thing with um, bracket testing, as we say with, uh, with most testing, is the, the first step is really to remember that it exists. You know, oncology is changing so much where uh, coming up with increasingly confusing acronyms for all of the mutations that we're finding in all of the mutations that we can actually do something against. Um, but just remember to, to do the test because it can, as Josh said, improve uh, both quantity exactly. and quality. And as always, thank you for joining us on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. My name's Josh. That's Mikey. We're both loving the fact that you're joining us. Please subscribe Look at our uh, Twitter, which is active. We like to look put little posts of just interesting things that happen in the oncology world. Um, obviously, uh, we make sure that's from reputable sources as well. And Mikey, what are we doing next week? Next time, Josh, on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, we are taking our second ever two-part deep dive into cancers of the upper gastrointestinal tract. That is both squamous and adenocarcinoma varieties of cancers of the esophagus, the gastroesophageal junction, and the stomach itself. A nasty collection of cancers, but our arsenal is slowly improving in our fight against them. And Josh, with your permission, I will take us out as we began with an inspiring quote from Leslie Medley Russell. She said, in response to her ovarian cancer diagnosis, that life is... 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. And on that note, we will see you all next week. Goodbye.